So please open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And next Lord's Day, we're going to start a new series. But today I thought it would be good for us to take a Sunday just to reflect upon and think through the Lord's Supper. And what a wonderful passage it is. I love walking through the Gospels. So if you can, would you stand, please? Matthew chapter 26. And let's read verses 26 through 29. Or 30. Let's read verse 30 too. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave the bread to His disciples and said, Take it, eat it, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you, in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You may be seated. As you look at this ring, think about this wedding ring. What does it symbolize? We all agree the the wedding ring is a symbol it's a symbol something representing something else when you're performing the wedding ceremony we usually say like for example we had Matt and Hannah's wedding a few years ago and we said you ask them to repeat remember Matt Wearing this ring as a symbol of our covenant. I marry you, uniting my heart and my life to yours. And that ring is a symbol. It's a symbol picturing the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. So when you see, you often look at the, especially in our culture, the left hand, and you see the ring right there, the finger. And you know that there, that's a symbol, it's a symbol, it's a picture of something else. It's representing something else. And the same we could think about when you see in a war somebody raising a white flag. What is that a symbol of? Surrender. You have the white flag or even the arms up. Surrender. In most cultures the thumbs up is good, it's okay. So those are symbols. And Christ has given the church two major symbols. Two symbolic actions that we do as a church to symbolize the gospel message. And that is the water baptism, the two ordinances, the water baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we can think about the the water baptism as this symbolic gesture of entering Right? Entering the church. So when you're being baptized, that's one symbolic action that it's picturing you now dying to your old life, being raised to a new life in Christ. But that's once that we do in our Christian journey. And then you have the Lord's Supper that is a symbolic gesture of our life, not entrance, but our continuation in the life in the church. That's what the Lord's Supper pictures and symbolize our life now, eating and drinking, fellowshipping, sitting with the King throughout our, our Christian life. And it's interesting that you think about the bread and the cup. It's a picture. It's a basic picture. If you have a bread and a cup in any Middle Eastern mind, they would understand that as a picture of a meal. Every meal you have a cup and bread. Bread was basic to every single meal. And we have a picture of a a supper, those two elements. And what's vital for us to remember is that Jesus is not creating this symbolic gesture ex nihilo, out of nothing. He's actually 
reinterpreting something else from the past. And what is he reinterpreting? Another symbolic gesture. That was the celebration of the Passover that they would celebrate every year. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, especially in Matthew 26. So here's the outline. We're going to be looking at three, thi three things this morning. The setting and the background to understand better what's taking place. Then we're going to look at the elements of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, some concluding remarks. So the setting. So please open your Bibles to Matthew 26. And you can see Matthew 26. Uh, we are dealing with Jesus' final hours before he's crucified and buried. And actually, if you turn with me to cha chapter 21, because that's where it starts, this major portion of Matthew. In chapter 21, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he's entering Jerusalem to do a, to celebrate the Passover. But not simply to celebrate the Passover, but to fulfill the Passover. So that's chapter 21. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And look at with me in chapter 20. Turn to chapter 20. Look at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside on the way and he said see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day so Jerusalem in Jesus mind is the place of the sacrifice he's heading to Jerusalem you can see because of chapter 20 that we are heading to Jerusalem because that's the place I need to die I need to die as the Passover lamb to fulfill that. So that's all where we are in chapter 26. As you come to chapter 26 of Matthew, they are now preparing to celebrate the Passover. And it's interesting how chapter 26 begins. He says, when Jesus, had, when Jesus had finished all these words, saying all these words, he said to his disciples. And what? Especially think about the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is structured in five major blocks. And these five major blocks is echoing the first part of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, that had five books. And the whole way that Matthew structures his Gospel is to show how Jesus fulfills, how he's the greater Moses, how he brings the better Exodus, he's the better Passover. So that's what we have here. And it's fascinating how he opens this chapter 26, because he's echoing Deuteronomy 32. And Deuteronomy 32 is the end of the life of Moses. And so you can compare the two, Matthew 26, 1 and 2, with Deuteronomy 32, 45, so he says in Deuteronomy 32 says, And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and you see how it parallels with Jesus, and when Jesus had finished saying all these things to his disciples, what is the purpose of that? Simple. Was Moses able to enter? No, he's actually blessing the people because he cannot go there. And the opposite takes place with Christ. He goes alone. And the people cannot go there. So he's showing that Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the better Passover who is bringing the better Exodus. So you can see just by the opening how Matthew is taking us back to the first five books of Moses. And then you look in chapter 26, just preparing us here. Uh, starting verse, in verse 17. So verse 17 through 19, you have the preparation for the Passover. Jesus is getting ready for them to celebrate the Passover. So when you come to chapter 26, in verse 26, we read, Now as they were eating. And the question is, what were they eating? Who was eating? What are they doing here? Yes, they're eating the Passover meal. They're celebrating the Passover. Look at the context. So as they're eating, means that they are now celebrating the Passover. And the Passover was a long celebration. 
That was a long night celebrating the Passover. It would take hours. And Jesus takes that opportunity to teach many things. And so if you go to, to, to the Gospel of John, from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, it's a lot of teachings from Jesus during those hours as they are celebrating the Passover. But there is one main lesson and one main teaching that he wants to show his disciples. And that is through this symbolic gesture of partaking the elements. So, look at verse 26. Now as they were eating, what were they eating? Yes, they're celebrating the Passover meal. The Passover was the most important event in the life of Israel. The Passover with the Exodus, they go together. Passover and Exodus, they go together as the most important event in the life of Israel under the Old Covenant. There's no other momentous historical event in their life as the Passover and the Exodus. Why? Because that's when God comes to make a covenant and make them His people. Take them as His treasure possession. That was the most important feast in Israel. And as I said, there was a long, long night celebrating. And usually in the course of the meal, the youngest boy present would ask some prescribed questions to the household, the father of the household. And the father would answer these questions of the little boy by retelling the story of the Passover and the Exodus. So Jesus now, he takes the role of the father of the household And he's going to retell the story of the Passover, but in light of his own life and ministry and death. So he's changing everything. What is interesting is that, as I said, it was a long meal. And the family would be reciting the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. So during the Passover meal, they would be reading and reciting the Psalms from 113 to 118. And there were four cups, and they would pause in between the meals. They had four cups to drink, and there was a benediction, a blessing. Also, it was like a a drama. The Passover, they would be celebrated as a drama. And the same thing applies to the Lord's Supper. It's a drama that we enact. So, what Jesus does here is shocking, because he's reinterpreting the history of Israel... In light of his own life. No sane person, man, would do that. Say, do you know what? This whole Passover that we have been celebrating for hundreds of years is all about me. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Because he's God. It's him. It's all about him. But that's shocking. And that's why the Jews today, they think that Jesus is a blasphemer. And they're going to count him as a blasphemer. Who is he to say that he is the fulfillment of the Passover and the Exodus? So Jesus takes the, the celebration of the greatest event in the history of Israel and turns into a symbolic, parabolic celebration for his people to celebrate himself. Gentry and Wellam, they say, in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Jesus redefines the Jewish Passover meal as a drama portraying his atoning death on the cross. This drama then inter- interprets his crucifixion in precisely those terms. A new exodus that brings about forgiveness and reconciliation on the basis of the sacrifice of himself as a Passover lamb. In this drama, the cup represents my blood of the covenant which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The setting. That's Jesus' last supper and his first supper. How is that possible? That's his last supper celebrating the old Passover. And at the same time, it's his first supper instituting what? And the Lord's Supper. So it's the last supper and at the same time, his first supper. With his disciples. So that's the setting. As you come to this passage, you need to understand. You need to behold the whole power of the Exodus, the Passover, in the history of Israel. And now that Jesus is taking and applying to himself. That's shocking. For us, it's not that shocking. But for any person growing up up as a Jew, that would be traumatizing. How can this man now 
declare that he is the fulfillment. But certainly, if a Jew, illumined by the Holy Spirit, knew his scriptures, he knew that the prophets often spoke about the coming Messiah as the true Passover, as Isaiah clearly describes that. But we'll get there. So here are the elements. So we move to the elements. So Jesus says, and Jesus took bread. That's the first element, the bread. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the, to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So the first element that Matthew mentions is the bread. Bread. And bread had a, a very meaningful significance in the history of the Passover. Do you remember the unleavened bread, the, the haste? According to Deuteronomy 16.3, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 16.3, it's when Moses retells how they are to celebrate the Passover, and he calls that bread the bread of affliction. Hmm. So the Passover bread is called the bread of affliction. That is the same Hebrew word used in Isaiah 53, verse 4, to describe the afflictions of the Suffering servant who will bring the greater exodus. Another important aspect about the bread is that it had developed by the time of Christ in the Jewish community. They had developed this custom of right in the beginning of the Passover celebration to break the bread and hide a piece of the bread. And I can see some of you nodding, yes, because they would hide that piece of bread and they would call that bread the afkomen, he who comes. He who comes, afkomen, the Greek. So they would hide that bread, and they would say that that piece of bread represents the Messiah who'd come to bring the new Exodus and a better Passover feast. So that's fascinating, because when Jesus says, this is me, there is this Christological or Messianic significance that he's saying, the Messiah that we were expecting, the afkomen, he has come. And that is me, right here. So the bread is beautiful because the bread is very simple, but it's so profound because it has so much symbolism throughout the scriptures. It's kind of hard to keep just with one symbolism because bread in itself is a powerful imagery throughout the scriptures. So you think about the bread of the presence. Why? The high priest had to bring and place the breads, the, the loaves of bread where? Right inside the tabernacle. As if Israel represented by those loaves of bread, was ba basking under the presence of God. And Jesus declared, He is the true Israel, and all those who are united with Him now come and bask under God's smiling face. Think about Jesus saying, Give us today our daily bread. What does He mean by that? He's using bread as a reference for our basic needs, our daily needs. The basic food that we need. So bread represents through all the scriptures this basic necessity. Bread is our, also pictured as a gift from God throughout the scriptures. So you see how all this, and Jesus is certainly the most glorious gift from God the Father to us. So you have all this symbolism behind the bread that's so vital to keep in mind when you're understanding what Jesus is doing with that piece of bread. Every meal, when a scholar says, every meal was eaten with bread. So every meal we had, bread was basic there. Bread was eaten on a daily basis with virtually every meal because it provided the bulk of carbohydrates and protein people required in order to complete a full day of physical labor. And you remember, they would, they would use the, the bread, even today, they use the bread as the plate and as the utensils. That's how you use bread, the pita. It's basic. You have that every meal. I like what Garland says, David Garland. He says, what is significant is that Jesus uses an article of food so simple and so universal that the disciples can never again recline at a meal, take bread, bless it, and break it without thinking of the last night that they were together with their Lord. Just as our memories are triggered by something that reminds us of the last moments that we spent with a departed loved one, 
these disciples can never eat another meal without thinking about what Jesus did for them on the cross. Because every meal they would take bread and break and share. And every time they're doing that, they, can, they cannot but think about whom? Their beloved Savior who did that the night that he was betrayed. So Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke and gave to the disciples. It's a gift he gives to them. And that for me is just so ridiculous to come to this passage and then try to say that, try to argue for transubstantiation, consubstantiation is the body of Jesus present in the bread. Brothers and sisters, that's clear that Jesus had nothing in mind that his body suddenly had become that bread. That makes no sense. Jesus often used metaphors. I'm the vine. I'm the shepherd. I'm the way. I'm the door. And people are not thinking, oh, he's the door. Oh, he's a, a shepherd. No, he's using metaphors, imageries. When he tells that Christians are the salt of the earth, he's not saying that now we, every time we get salt, Christians are there. If the priest bless the salt, suddenly there's Christianity there in that salt. So I'm, I'm not going to be spending time here. When, when Jesus commands his disciples to eat that bread, he's calling them to participate in his life. That's the same thing that he says in John chapter 6. If you do not eat of my flesh, you have no right with me. It's just a picture of fellowshipping. You're chewing, you're swallowing, meaning it's in you. There is this communion. His body, his person, his whole the whole being of Christ, his accomplishments, will give them life. That's what he's saying. You gotta eat it. What happens if you don't eat? You die. And Jesus is saying, I am your basic necessity. Without me, you are dead. That's what Christ is saying. And each one of his disciples must take and eat, every single one of them. You see, Peter cannot eat on behalf of John. John cannot eat on behalf of Andrew, implying that a father cannot have the fellowship on behalf of his son. You're not a Christian on behalf of somebody else. Christianity comes to this that you must follow Christ. And you alone. Each single disciple of Jesus must partake of the sacrifice of fellowship with the suffering one. So that's the bread. And then we move to the cup. There's the cup. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, of it, all of you. So the second element is the cup. The primary emphasis here is the cup. And we hear that he gave thanks. And the Lord gave thanks. The, the, the Greek word is euharistel. Eucharistel, from where we have Eucharist. That's why one of the names for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist. Why? To give thanks. It's a moment that we pause and give thanks. And yes, I know that the Roman Catholic used the, the, the title Eucharist, so sometimes we, we feel like, oh man, that's the Roman Catholic use. But it's a beautiful title. It's a, it's a moment when the church gives thanks for the sacrifice of Christ. So what is beautiful here is that Jesus knows that the cup represents his death. And what type of death? A nice death? Is he dying his old age, circled by loved ones? No, it's a gruesome death. It's a bloody, ugly death. And yet, he thanks the Lord for that. He thanks the Father for that. Hmm. He holds the cup that represents the death that's about to take place where he will be hanging naked with his body open and he gives thanks. 
And then who are we to get bitter and angry at God when we go through our pitiful sufferings compared to Christ's sufferings? And he tells them to drink all from the same cup. It's interesting, he doesn't give cups. It's one cup. One cup that he's holding, and they're all going to partake of the same cup. And that's different because during the Passover meal, different people have their own cups. But that's a unique situation that Jesus is doing here. Why? Because by drinking of his cup, the same cup, it's a picture of sharing the same destiny. So throughout the scriptures, when you say, I'll drink of your cup, means I'm sharing the same destiny with you, either for good or for bad. To drink from the same cup is a sign of deep, intimate fellowship with someone. That's why you remember when the disciples come to Jesus, James and John, and they ask for a special place. Do you remember? Their mom, mommy comes, and their mama boys, and the mom comes and asks for a special place for them in the kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus says? Can you drink? Can you drink from my cup? And then Jesus says, in a salvific way, you cannot. In a toning way, you are not going to drink of my cup. But you will drink of my cup of suffering. Meaning, you will fellowship with me in my sufferings. So to drink from the same cup is to partake of a deep fellowship. Michael Morales says, in partaking of his, blood, of his body and blood, the disciples were identifying with the firstborn son of God. The firstborn of a new humanity. So I know that some of you must be scared right now and thinking, are we going to start all drinking from the same cup in the Lord's Supper? <laughs> Especially with everybody sick. I remember... I can't remember who told me that. They used to go to the church and they would share the same cup. And now he's in the front line of the cup was this elderly lady. And she loved to remove her dentures, keep moving the dentures. And he remembers seeing that and seeing her grabbing the cup first. <laughs> and he was right after her. And I know that some of you fear that. But don't worry. We will not start doing that right now. <laughs> in some cultures they do that, and in many cultures they do that. And even some churches here in the U.S. they do that. I know. We can talk about that more. <laughs> but the picture is they're all sharing from the same cup. Why? Because look at verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They all must drink from the same cup because the forgiveness is coming from this one cup. It's the cup of Christ's death. It's his death, this one cup representing that we provide them with the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant that they're part of. So, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And you see that Jesus is in charge of his death. His death is no accident. There is no, oh, poor Jesus. He's in charge of his death. He knows we are going to Jerusalem and now we'll be killed. Let's go. And now he's holding the cup and declaring that that's the cup that represents his blood that's about to be shed on their behalf. So this sentence is packed with reference to the Old Testament. The first one is the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant, this whole, this full expression appears in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, if you know your, your Bibles, you know that's the ratification of the Mosaic covenant. It's when God is ratifying His Mosaic covenant. He calls them, He brings them to His mountain. There at Sinai, He gives the law the Torah, his covenantal instruction, and then in chapter 24, there is the ratification. Now the blood is splashed all over, the covenant is formalized 
We can say. So we have in Exodus 24, 8, we read, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Look at it. The same expression. The blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And what is beautiful is how Zechariah uses this passage from Exodus to speak about a new Exodus. So if you go to Zechariah chapter 9, you know that Zechariah is speaking about a greater Exodus that will take place. And he used that same terminology. So he says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So Zechariah is already seeing this greater exodus as a deliverance, not from the Babylonians or the Persians, but from the grave of death and sin. So you see how the authors of the Bible are already developing this theme of a better exodus. And the exodus, the Passover, had as its goal the covenant, and the covenant had the purpose of God dwelling with them, forming them into a kingdom of priests. That's exactly what takes place. And now we have Jesus now for forming a kingdom of priests through a new covenant with His blood. So you have the bread and the wine. also reminds us of the priestly king Melchizedek in Genesis 14.8. He was a royal priest from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There he is. And we have Christ forming His kingdom of priests, dying in Jerusalem. So there is this beautiful connection here with the Old Testament. But not only that, it says that His death, it says that will be pour, His blood will be poured out or shed on behalf of many. The word poured out also is from the Old Testament and was used for the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So if you're reading Exodus, Leviticus, and you keep seeing the, the blood of the animal being poured out, that's the word that's used there. And it's... This word is not only used for the sacrifice, but it's often used for a violent death. A violent death that will take place. So Christ's death was indeed violent. And His death must be bloody, gruesome, violent. Why? To show how sin must be dealt before God. That's why His death is heinous, ugly, gruesome. The flogging of Jesus, the flesh being torn apart from His body. All the blood that was poured out is to demonstrate how sin must be treated in the presence of a holy God. So the cup also symbolized the wrath of God on sin. And that's why we sing about the blood of Christ so often. There is a fountain filled with blood. Why do we sing about the blood? Because we know that in God's economy, there was the necessity of a holy blood to be poured out, shed on behalf of sinful people. And look how he says, it is poured out for whom? Many. Many. Just like the sacrifice in the Old Testament, and you think about the Passover lamb, did the Passover lamb save everybody? Just a group of people. You see, so there is a, a limitation in the scope. Not a limitation in the power of the death, but a limitation in the scope. It's a limited group of people that will be receiving this forgiveness. So he says that it's poured out for many. The word for, peri, is better translated as on behalf of. So his death is a vicarious death. What is vicarious? On the place of somebody. That's what Jesus is doing. And also it's being taken from the Old Testament. And look at this passage from Isaiah 53. And how Jesus is taking this passage from Isaiah 53. It says in verse 11 through 12. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make what? Many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, look at that, same, same expression, he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressor, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressor. 
transgressors. So you see how Jesus is taking that passage from Isaiah 53, and if you know Isaiah 52 and 53, you know that's the heart of Isaiah, where now he describes how the new exodus will take place, is through the death of the suffering servant. And Jesus now is applying that passage to himself, and say it's taking place right now with me. So, verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And why is it being poured out for many? What have you been studying the past few Sundays? So you see, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of forgiveness of sins. See how forgiveness of sins is so fundamental throughout the whole structure of the story of the Bible. This exodus is an exodus from the slavery of sin. So Gentry and Wellam, they say, the reference in Matthew to blood poured out for many is a clear allusion to Isaiah 53, where the servant of the Lord is a Passover lamb whose atoning death brings about forgiveness for the many. Jesus' last Passover meal then is converted into a new ceremonial tradition in which the cup represents his life. Sacrifice to bring about the forgiveness of sins in the new Exodus defined by Isaiah and Jeremiah. But you see how fundamental and crucial it is to understand the Old Testament. Otherwise it makes no sense. The Lord's Supper. And now we come to the glorious, the glorious news. Verse 29. Look at that. I tell you, I will not drink again from, uh, of this fruit of the vine. Until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And there is a lot of controversy and arguments about this passage. What is that about? Very simple. Let me simplify here. Every time Jesus talks about his death, he talks about what? His resurrection. You, you get Jesus' passions, predictions for the Son of Man... We'll go to Jerusalem and he will be scored, suffer, die, and, cruc- and resurrect on the third day. So he, he always brings the bad news of death and the good news of resurrection. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's going to die. So how can he drink again? Can a dead person drink of the wine again? No. So what is he implying here? I'm going to conquer death. And I'll come back again. And we are going to celebrate again. That's what he's saying. That's my last Passover, the old Passover. But what I'm about to do, I'm going to raise, I'm going to be raised, and then we're going to celebrate something new. There will be a better Passover that we're going to be celebrating. That's what Jesus is saying here. That day is, is an expression found all over the prophets. On that day, that day, days are coming. It's an eschatological term for the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of things. The word new also is eschatological, referring to the final things, when a new creation would be established, a new name we would receive, a new song we would sing, a new man would be formed. And that's what Jesus is saying. Something new is about to take place with my death. And especially with my resurrection. So the cup of death will bring the cup of glory. Right now this cup is the cup of suffering and death. But the cup of glory is coming. When you're all going to celebrate together. So we have this already and not yet. That we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And then it says in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. So the Passover was concluded around midnight. That's when the celebration was over. And Matt, you'd be dead by then. This guy goes to bed at 7.30. (laughs) Midnight would be done, the the party. And that's when they would finish now by singing Psalms 115 through 118. And Jesus, now he's marching towards his death. He's leading his band of not-so-brave soldiers with him. To the Mount of Olives. So he's moving east. And he leads them. Lamenting. 
Cry, singing, singing. And they're all singing with the captain as he's marching towards his death and victory. So if the disciples who had not yet received the full benefit and revelation of that meal left the supper singing, how much more should we sing in light of all that we have in Christ? And that's why we sing. That's why we sing. We sing with joy and loudly because we have a great Savior. Amen? So to finish here, some concluding thoughts or concluding remarks. Before, listen to me here. There are waves in the church where it becomes cool for Christians to celebrate the Passover. So suddenly Christians must celebrate the Passover. And we need to be careful with that. It's one thing if you have a Jewish background, you grew up celebrating the Passover. And even then, once you become a Christian, the Passover will never be the same. That celebration will be different. Because you know that the old Passover did not rescue from the tyranny of sin and Satan. But there has been trends throughout years in the church where suddenly Christians must celebrate the Passover. That's going backwards. That's going backwards. We move forward with the Lord's Supper. Amen? So the Lord's Supper is beautifully designed to stitch together the past, the present, and the future. We don't need to just go back to the past. We have the present and the future in the Lord's Supper. In one symbolic act that affects our eyes, our taste, our smell, and our touch. As we grab the cup, we grab the bread, we taste. Amen? Our present existence is framed by Jesus' past coming and by His future coming. So there are, I would say, three dimensions in the Lord's Supper. Three dimensions you keep in mind as you partake of the Lord's Supper. There is the past dimension. And what is that? We look back. We look back to what Christ accomplished for us. Christianity is a historical faith. Amen? We have dates. It, that's why we, we love history, because it's His story. There was a time, we can date that, we go back, we know, we know who was ruling over Palestine, who was on the Roman throne. So there's history, we look back, there was a past that took place and Christ came. But we never stop with the past, we move to the present. And we remember that according to the Bible, to remember something is not just to be reminded of, but it's an occasion to do something. So I like what Garland says. He says, the past is never merely the past, but is relived in the present. The remembrance entails being mindful of God's deliverance in Christ, which should have direct consequences for behavior. It requires reflection on His sacrifice, worship of Him, and obedience to His commands. So there is this present aspect as we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do this. Do this. And yes, there is this aspect that we need to do by taking the elements. But there is something deeper than that. Do this is He saying, do what the Lord's Supper proclaims. And what does the Lord's Supper proclaims? The gospel. So do the gospel. Behave like Christians. Do this. What does the Lord's Supper proclaims? The death of Christ. His love. His sacrificial love. Do this. There is this present aspect. We must do that also. Live like Christ. Imitate Him. Follow after His steps. Paul says also, as we think about the present dimension, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. During the Lord's Supper, I'm not the only one preaching. The whole church is preaching. That's why it's beautiful. That's one of these magnificent aspects of this ordinance, is that the whole church is proclaiming through actions, through a symbolic action. All of us together are proclaiming the gospel when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about that. That's an act that all of us, it's a present declaration. 
It's a present celebration and proclamation of our Lord's victory through, through death, providing forgiveness of sins. It's a present declaration that there is forgiveness today. Today there is forgiveness. That's what we are proclaiming with the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is a parable that we declare together through actions. The Lord's Supper is a symbol that we portray together. The Lord's Supper is a drama that we enact together during the service. So there is the past, there is the present, and there is what? The future. There is the consummation. There is the consummation. We look forward to the consummation of all things when Christ returns and the Lord's Supper will become the final marriage supper of the Lamb. For now we see Him by faith. On that day we will sit with Him and see Him face to face. So there is this future aspect of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a declaration that those who shared His table in the time of His obscurity, of His suffering, will also share in the time of His glory. That's the future aspect of the Lord's Supper. We look forward to that day when we we all be seated, not by faith, but by sight, with the king and evil and pain. We all be exterminated. So there is this dimension, the past, the present, the future, but there is the orientation, our personal orientation. There is an inward orientation. The Lord's Supper causes us to think inwardly. Examining our hearts. Just prior to the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper, He says, one of you will betray me. And what that causes is the disciples to, to judge themselves. Is it I? Is it me, Lord? And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. You need to judge yourselves. You need to examine yourselves. So there is this inward aspect where we need to reflect. Where is my heart? The Lord's Supper celebrates the death of Christ. Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How can anyone who has no sacrificial love for the church celebrate Christ's sacrificial love for the church? <laughs> Does it make sense? The Lord's Supper is a celebration of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. And then you get people who have no love for the church and they're celebrating them. That makes no sense. That's why there must be this inward examination, inward looking at Is my life matching what this celebration is all about? I'm celebrating forgiveness of sin, the new covenant, a new community where now I have life with God's people. Is that my life? And if not, why would I be celebrating that or proclaiming that? So there is an inward, there is an outward. We look at each other. We look at each other as we are celebrating. We come to the Lord's Supper beholding the grace in one another's life. We sit together as children and slaves of Christ. So we look outward. We celebrate together. It's a church ordinance. You don't, cannot partake. You know, partake of the Lord's Supper is not this private thing that you just want to do so you can feel good about yourself. So sometimes you see people just closing their eyes and just partaking. That's not a private, a personal Thing that's a communion meal. We partake together. We celebrate together. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. Wait for one another. Wait for that's for you guys to partake together. That's why I don't perform the Lord's Supper on wedding ceremonies. Because that's a church ordinance. I don't take the Lord's Supper at people's homes. Why? Because that's a church ordinance. We partake that together as a church. And if in God's providence you cannot be at church, it's, we feel bad. In the same way that you cannot be there to be present at a baptism, to hear the preaching, to sing songs with the church, to have corporate prayer, you cannot have the Lord's Supper. It's not this magical thing. And that's why people sometimes get offended when they come to church and we talk about who can partake. Is that Because they're just thinking about themselves. I want that. That's going to make me feel good when we need to be thinking outward. There's outward orientation. Thomas Reiner says, The Lord's Supper is not merely a meal where I celebrate what Jesus did for me. And we do. We celebrate what He did for me. He gave Himself up for me. But it doesn't stop there. 
It's a communion. It's a, it's a corporate meal where the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, give thanks for what Jesus did for us. A new family has been forged through the sweat and blood of the Savior. And we also look outward to the lost. We hope that the lost will come and see us celebrating because we want them to join the table. So there's this outward orientation where we are hoping that others will see the grace of God and come to His table also. But the last one is the upward. The upward. We don't stop with inward, outward, it's upward. Because the Lord's Supper is all about whom? The Lord. It's His table, it's His supper, it's His death, it's His sacrifice that we celebrate. Amen? It's all about Him. He's the main character in this drama. It's His story. It's His glory. It's His majesty in display as we are partaking. So the Lord's Supper reminds us who we are, what our story is, what our values are, and who claims us as His own. And that's the Lord Jesus. Amen? So, I hope that helps us to prepare ourselves as we are going to partake of this wonderful ordinance. We call ordinance because it comes from our Lord as an order to His church. And everything that He orders for us is good and beneficial. And we must be mindful that it's His table. It's not our table, it's His table. And you must always come with thankful hearts, joyful hearts for what He has done for us. Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is the only truth that can set us free. We pray that You would work in us, help us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, the Savior that we have in Him. Lord, we praise You. We praise You for this beautiful ordinance that we have. Thank You for instituting and commanding us to celebrate that. Help us to prioritize the Lord's days that we have, the Lord's Supper. Help us not take this for granted, Lord. Help us to see the beauty that's the one event that we all proclaim together with a symbolic gesture of your love, your forgiveness, and the fellowship that we have with you now. So we give you all the glory. We thank you. And we pray to prepare our hearts, Lord, to sit with you, to sit at your table. Be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.